title of my message this morning is Peace Be With You. It's a formal greeting. It's repeated twice in the passage. Jesus shows up in the room and says, Peace be with you. In fact, when I was in uh, Bible college, uh, I had an Old Testament professor. He taught us a little Hebrew. It's kind of a common greeting. thought we'd begin with it this morning. It's very common, evenly used today. Uh, he would say, Shalom Alechem. And you might reply, Shalom Alecha. We practiced that one time. Shalom Alechem. See, Doug, that's the way you do it. You say, Peace to the messenger. You don't, uh, I'm not sure what you did, but that's all right. <laughs> What a beautiful passage we have this morning. Um, Lori and I have uh, owned a couple of houses. And when we took possession of our homes, um, people would come to visit. And they would bring housewarming gifts, right? A potted plant, uh, something something to encourage, something to celebrate. At the risk of being kind of glib here this morning, this is the context and the feeling I'd like you to get from this passage. Jesus shows up to this residence and is going to bring and provide gifts. In fact, we're going to see this morning four housewarming gifts, if you will. And the purpose of a housewarming gift is to warm the heart, yes? I mean, that's what, that's, I mean, yeah, thank you for this. But after that, I have three heartwarming effects, if you will, here uh, that I want to look at. So not having a ton of time, and as Doug said, a little bit of things to look at, uh, we'll, uh, we'll get to this passage now. We're going to go through the passage three ways. One, I'm going to go through it quickly and just kind of tell you the story, stir up your hearts, engage you with a couple of issues, raise a few questions, uh, understand some of the cultural differences between then and now that probably have you scratching your head. Like, what, what does that mean? Um, then number two, we'll go back through and take a look at uh, the four gifts and then the three effects. So that's what we'll do this morning. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, this is the same introduction that John used last week uh, at the, earlier in the same day when Mary Magdalene shows up at the tomb with the other women. Now this is A.D. 90-ish, 30 years after Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written. And so for some reason, John continues to drive this point home, perhaps a point of cultural problem in his day. Are they, should they meet on Saturday? Should they meet on Sunday? John continues to emphasize and to teach the first day of the week, the first day of the week. The doors being locked where Jesus where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. The Jewish authorities executed Jesus. Jesus was the widely popular and innocent leader of these men. Pilate said so three times. And now his tomb is empty. You could imagine the disciples are fearful, probably not only because of their association with Jesus, but also because the authorities will probably view them as the prime suspects in the case of the missing body of Jesus. This is no small scandal. John tells us then how Jesus comes and stands among them. It's the same day. In the morning, Jesus appears to Mary, Magdalene, Peter, and John come to the tomb, run away. Later on this day, Jesus will travel on the road to Emmaus and meet a couple of disciples and they will talk and talk through the scriptures and then Jesus will 
disclose himself to them. And the scripture tells us that these men then hurry back to Jerusalem and disclose this to the disciples. We're not sure if those two disciples who were on the road to Emmaus are in the room with them or not, but certainly we know it's the ten, right? You say, wait, I thought there were twelve. Well, no, Judas is gone. And we find out in a subsequent passage that Thomas is not with them. We will hear that story next week. So there are at least 10, perhaps 12. There could be more. At a minimum, the 10. It's possible the two from the Emmaus Road. Matthew tells us that. And Jesus shows up. How startling. How abrupt. Not a corpse. Alive. John wrote last week and kind of gave us the impression that Jesus could be even mistaken for a gardener, yes? (laughs) Looking very human. And when he speaks, obviously able to be understood as Jesus. He said to Mary, he called her by name. She recognized him. Somehow, although he's human, human, Jesus is able to interlock rooms. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. However, Jesus, throughout the gospel, has defied human norms, has he not? He has fed 5,000. He has walked on the water. He has given sight to a man born blind. And ultimately, in chapter 11, he raised Lazarus from the dead. I would probably guess that if you do not have a problem with believing the miracles of Jesus that I just outlined for you, you probably don't have too much trouble believing he can get through a locked door. But John doesn't tell us, neither do Mark nor Luke, exactly how Jesus, did he defeat the lock? Did he come through the wall? We'll talk about that in a minute. But it's no doubt startling for the disciples, for Jesus to enter the room in his resurrected body. Now, the last time any of these disciples had seen Jesus was when? Right before they fled as he was being arrested. Can you imagine? What do you think they feel? I would bet they feel the weight of failure, the guilt of betrayal. John shows us that Jesus gives no animosity. In the other Gospels, Mark tells us, remember, John is writing 30 years later than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so oftentimes, he's not trying to retell the story, but he's trying to emphasize something, or he wants to add backstory. He wants to give us something new. In this case, it's the latter, something new. But Mark tells us that Jesus taught them directly about their lack of faith. He does rebuke them a little bit and say, just like he would have when the storm was raging, where is your faith? I told you this, you should have believed it. And Luke emphasizes even more than John does that Jesus ate in front of them to prove he wasn't a ghost. But John, 30 years later, has something new to offer to the story. He takes it in a whole new direction. He includes things that the others have not shared. It's obvious that Jesus loves these men. And Jesus announces to them what his death on their behalf has accomplished for them. Are you ready? Peace. 
Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not include these words of Jesus. Jesus announces to them that he has absorbed and paid the wrath of the Father. Jesus has crushed the head of the serpent. Jesus tasted the sting of death. And in so doing, Jesus opens the gates of life. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, the risen Lord offers peace to all who will receive it. And then, having spoken peace in their hearts in verse 19, Jesus makes an appeal to their heads. It is clear that John, as well as the other gospel writers, want us to understand that Jesus rose from the grave bodily. He shows them his hands to verify and shows them his side to demonstrate that he did indeed suffer in the body and has been raised in the body. And the disciples have an effect on them. They move, John tells us, they move from fearful to glad. (laughs) This is the effect of Jesus. Their fears are gone. They're no longer startled about the awareness of Jesus. They're no longer fearful about the attacks of the Jews. Jesus is here. He speaks peace to their hearts. They rejoice. We should too. And then Jesus renews the peace in verse 21. He says it twice. Peace be with you. Then he says, peace be with you as the Father has sent me. I'm sending you. And he says that this shalom, this peace that he speaks into their lives is for the benefit of other people. So we'll address that today. And then he says, we have a mission. And that means when Jesus breathes on the disciples, okay, now what's this about? I was talking with my daughter, Angela, yesterday. She's going to shoot me because I told her I'd do this. But uh, uh, we were driving home from VBS praise team practice, and uh, she said, what are you preaching? And I began to tell her a story, and she goes, he breathed on them. Don't people go to jail for that? <laughs> I mean, right here in coronavirus world, you, you don't do that anymore. In fact, you wear a mask, right? You don't, you don't breathe on people. Of course, then she, I mean, this is the American side of this, right? When you read this, you don't understand the cultural, uh, what, what does this mean? Uh, of course, we teased about whether or not Jesus, what if he had bad breath? I don't think the risen Savior would. I can't prove that. But when he breathes on the disciples and mentions the receiving of the Holy Spirit in verse 22, and he tells them that anyone they forgive is forgiven, and says that anyone you don't forgive is not forgiven, Jesus begins to explain to us that the disciples are his replacement as the place on earth where God dwells and where forgiveness is found. This might be considered the Great Commission of John. We all familiar with the Great Commission from Matthew, right? As you're going, go ye therefore into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And Jesus said to them, Even as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold them, they are withheld. This is the Great Commission. Almost ready. John has noticed that the Spirit, John has noted before that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, would not be given until Jesus was glorified. Let's tie these strings together before we go to our go to the outline. Remember chapter 7, verse 39? The great feast. John spent it from chapter. 7 through 
Actually, the, the resurrection of Lazarus through 11. Remember the story began, are you going to the feast or you're not? Everyone's encouraging him to go to the feast, not going to go. He says he's not going to go. He ends up going. The last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this Jesus said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus would not yet glorify. Do you remember that? That, that, that's a string here we have to bring in context. Jesus had also told his disciples that if he didn't go away, the Spirit would not come to them. This is chapter 16, verse 7. Remember this? Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the Helper will not come. But if I go away, I'll send him to you. Remember that? When Jesus says, receive the Holy Spirit, it is pulling all these threads together. Once Jesus was glorified at the cross, and because of the atonement Jesus made at the cross, the Spirit now, we'll talk about this more later, will take up residence in his temple. Believers. We assume this and say it so quickly. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit, we're the temple of God, that I don't think we... Do it justice. My study has helped me think about it this week. No sacrifices for sin are offered in this temple because the sacrifice of Jesus has already been made. Remember Jesus said this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Remarkable. Under the old covenant, the Holy Spirit lived in the temple. At Jesus' baptism, the Spirit came down on him to remain on him. And now Jesus imparts the indwelling Spirit to his disciples. At Pentecost, the Spirit's arrival will publicly announce the followers of Jesus as the people of God. But here in this small, intimate gathering, Jesus speaks peace to his disciples, the men through whom those who do not know him will meet God because God lives in them. They are the men who, by welcoming others into their belief, they will bring a ministry of forgiveness and reconciliation because that's what Christ accomplished for everyone who will repent and believe. And that's why John's purpose is so focused. He pleads with everyone. Look just a little further down, verse 20. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples that are not written in this book, but these I did write, these are written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is one of the last threads of John to pull together. He's been speaking about the Spirit, and now he imparts it, pulling all this together. Well, let's see what gifts Jesus brings to his followers, and we'll try to continue to unpack that and bring some structure to it. Jesus' four gifts, housewarming gifts, if you will, that he brings. Number one, Jesus brings us an engaging peace. I've spoken about it just a little bit here, an engaging peace. They need peace, don't they? You need peace? The Greek word for peace isn't onomatopoeia, it's erene. I always remembered the word in, uh, in uh, my language classes because erene day is peaceful. Erene. It's, it's, it's one of those words that sounds like what it is. It's just 
peaceful. They're in this room, probably the upper room where they'd gathered before. The door's locked. Fear of the Jews. The Romans have just executed the Messiah. It might be really easy for the Jewish leaders to now lead them to this small little band of remaining disciples and wipe out this whole problem altogether. But the doors are locked. As I said before, you're probably not too exercised about how did Jesus get in. If you believe he rose from the dead, uh, this is not a problem for the risen Lord. People speculate about this. John Calvin wrote in his commentary, he says Jesus probably did not pass through the walls, but the miracle was he opened the door even when it was locked. Other commentators have taken this to mean that the resurrection of body in some mysterious way is able to materialize through walls. It's kind of strange to think about. There are a couple of images here. How does he get into the room? Why does he breathe on people? It's undeniably supernatural, yes? I mean, that's true, whatever you come down to. There's no help from the other gospel writers. It seems to be the case in the same way it appears that Jesus passed through the grave clothes. They were laying there. He then folded the, the, the head shroud and as a sign that he was done with his death. I don't want to spend a lot of time on speculative. It doesn't serve us. It is supernatural. But however he gets into the room, however that happens, there he is, visible, with his wounds in his hands, with his wounds, in, with the wound in his side. And again, like I said, we'll see more of that next week as he encounters Thomas. The wounds are there to remind and convince the disciples. They're there for us too. They are happy to see him. Would you be happy to see the risen Lord? He gives them the word, a wonderful word, a familiar word. It was their greeting, shalom alekim, shalom alekha. It was a common greeting, peace. It's a way of saying, I'm here. Everything is okay. Two days ago, we had thunderstorms come through. We had big hail at my house. I think it hailed for nine or ten minutes. They are standing by the door. We had someone bigger than a golf ball. I remember when we had younger kids, thunderstorms. They'd be scared, frightened, call out for help. I couldn't make the storm go away. <laughs> I have no such power. But I could go into the room, and what would I say? It's okay. I'm here. And Jesus appears in the room with a frightened group of disciples. Peace. It's a way of communicating blessing. It's repeated twice for emphasis. It becomes the compelling framework for the other teaching. Verse 19, peace be with you. Again in verse 21, he said to them, peace be with you. Have you ever noticed that every letter that Paul writes begins with grace to you and peace? Or grace, mercy, and peace? Peace is there at the beginning of every one of Paul's greetings. What did the angels announce at Christmas time? Peace on earth. Isaiah said that Jesus would be the 
Prince of Peace. So don't overlook this. Don't just think that Jesus is saying, Howdy! Don't think of this piece, as we might say, like a beatnik kind of, Hey! It's not just, What's up? No, this piece is not as our world might understand, a generic, How you doing well wish. This piece is tied to the person and work of Jesus. Earlier, just before his death, chapter 14, verse 27, in the upper room at the Last Supper, Jesus said to them, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. That's what peace is. Don't be afraid. I am with you. That's wonderful. So this is what Jesus means when he appears and says to the frightened disciples, peace be with you. He means don't be afraid. I'll be with you. Don't be afraid. I've overcome the world. John reminds us. John 16, verse 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Remember that passage? But take heart. I have overcome the world. In the world you will have trouble. In the world, you can have Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm here. You can have peace. It's the very thing I want you to hear from me. He already met with Mary Magdalene, but here he is in this next story, appearing to these ten disciples, and the first words out of his mouth, the first thing he wants them to hear and understand, peace. May it go well with you. May you be blessed. May you flourish. May you be cheered. May you be confident. May you have assurance. May you be calm. May you find rest. I am with you. Oh, praise the Lord. There are spiritual overtones here. I think of Paul picking up on this theme when he was writing the book of Romans. And early in the book of Romans, he speaks of God's wrath against us and his anger towards sin and his hostility towards those who are separated from him and do not know his son. And in chapter 5, verse 1, speaking of the atonement of Jesus, he says, Therefore, because we are justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus brings peace. We were at war. The wrath of God was against us. We were at war with God. Now we have peace. So don't pass by before we get to all the next points. The very first thing Jesus wanted his disciples to hear on the very first Easter Sunday morning. I mean, evening. <laughs> peace be with you. I said it was an engaging peace. It reconciles us to God. Some people are, called, are described as oh, very engaging, easy to relate to. Jesus reconciled us to God. We have to move on. Jesus, secondly, brings us an eternal purpose. Not just peace with you. Verse 21, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. He was probably speaking specifically to the early disciples, just those ten. Sometimes when we're doing Bible study, we have to look at a passage and say, 
Who is the you? Is the you us or is the you just them, right? I mean, it's important for us to, to look at that and get that figured out very well. I think in this case you can safely do a both and. He, he's specifically talking here to these disciples. Remember John fifteen twenty seven. You will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. There is a unique witness they were to bear because they had been with Jesus. But if you remember John 17, Jesus also prays for the disciples. Those 11 at the time, 12. And then he prays for those who will believe through their word. Jesus is operating with this assumption. I have these disciples who are with me. They will give an eyewitness testimony, and then there are those disciples who will come to believe on their account. Remember what Jesus said to Thomas in verse 29. You believe because you've seen? Blessed are those who have not seen and still have believed. Well, who hasn't seen? Who hasn't heard? Well, I haven't. I haven't seen and heard firsthand. I've not seen the resurrected Lord. I've not put my fingers into his hands and into his side. And neither have you. We believe based on the eyewitness testimony of those who were there. That's the purpose of this book. The work of the church, friends, and say, what's the point of an enduring purpose, this uh, this um, eternal purpose that God has given us, this timeless purpose. It's eternal because this was the mission of Jesus before the foundation of the world, and it continues to be going on indefinitely. The work of the church continues directly upon this command in verse 21. We are the ones who have believed based on the ministry of Jesus into the lives of these disciples. Our being faithful to proclaim the word. And so it makes sense that the people who are gathered around their teaching would share in the same kind of practices, the same kind of experiences, and the ones to whom Jesus is speaking most immediately are those disciples. But, again, Jesus wrote, John says clearly, I wrote these things so that everyone would believe. That's why we talk about the Gospel of John being so helpful to new believers. And probably part of what John's trying to do here is to highlight this from Jesus, to say, here's our reason, here's why we've been trying to share the Gospel with you, here's why we've been telling you about Jesus and calling you to faith, because this is what Jesus told us to do. As the Father sent me, I am sending you. Sharing Jesus with our neighbors and following him together. Sound familiar? What is that? That's the Heather Hills Baptist Church mission statement. Friends, when we wrote that, how long ago, Joel? 15 years? It's been a minute, right? Our goal was not to come up with something new or witty or catchy. Our goal was to, to take the Great Commission and, and make it Eastside Indianapolis. The mission and purpose of the church is not up for debate. It's given by our king. That makes it eternal. It's a high purpose. It's a wonderful purpose. And in the same way, the mission of the disciples is one of adoption, to bring those who are far away into the family of God. It's a mission of salvation, that by faith they would have eternal life in his name. It's a mission of redemption, to set captives free from bondage to sin and self and the devil. We must remember that as he sends out the disciples, 
we carry, Heather Hills Baptist Church, my friends, my brothers and sisters, we carry the mission of God. The purpose of the church is eternal. It's meaningful. It's weighty. It's worthwhile. It's worth your time. It's worth your treasure. It's worth your talents. Jesus brings this. What a statement. As the Father sent me. Was that important? Was that important that the Father sent Jesus? As the Father sent me, I am sending you. Is it important that we are sent? Is it important that we go? It's compared to the ministry of Jesus to us. Third thing, Jesus brings us an indwelling person. If you're very attentive, you know that indwelling does not start with E. But that's okay. It's still a vowel, so it sounds close. I did my best. Jesus brings us an indwelling person. Verse 22, And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. It's a little bit of a confusing passage, just maybe one of the things that Doug was talking about. I'm just going to skip all the hard parts, Doug, and I'll leave them for you ABF teachers. And um, Just kidding. Um, first of all, let's talk about this idea of breathing on them. Okay, this is unique and kind of, uh, kind of different. Sorry, this cable's just pulling on me a little bit. Um, it's not the first time that this idea of breathed on has been used in the Bible. Does it sound familiar to anyone? Kind of early in the Bible. Genesis 2, 7, and God breathed into them the breath of life. So uh, we can only interpret a passage like this and understand its significance by using biblical theology, by looking back and trying to think about this. Now, if you know the Holy Spirit, then uh, if you, um, Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, uh, co-equal, co-equal with the Father and the Son, same nature, one God, three persons. If you don't understand that fully, you're in good company. I'm with you. But I do understand it to some extent. It's the Greek word pneuma. P-N-E-U-M. We have any English words that begin with P-N-E-U-M? Yeah, pneumonia, pneumatic. It means breath or wind. It's air-driven. Okay? So this is kind of interesting that Jesus, it's not the same word. He doesn't say pneuma the holy pneuma. He uses a different word for breathe, so it's not like a wordplay or anything. But so he, he breathes like, like a physical, and then says, receive the Holy Spirit. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 37 just for a minute, we do need to do just a little bit of biblical theology here. Kind of a cool passage. I'm learning to love the book of Ezekiel. I'm going to read the just 14 verses here. I'm sorry, it's a little long, but hope you'll engage and pay attention. Follow along. The hand of the Lord was upon me. He brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and sat me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were dry, dry bones. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. That's probably a good answer, isn't it? (laughs) 
Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews, tissues, living tissue on you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded and I prophesied and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Remember, that's the whole point here, breath. Verse 9, then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and they stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord. And when I open the graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, I will put my spirit within you. And you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it, declares the Lord. So what do we learn? Uh, thanks for playing along there, following. Uh, Genesis 2, 7. At the creation of man, God forms out of the dust a human, not alive. That would have been an interesting four seconds, right? And then God breathes into him the breath of life. So this God-breathing thing is a, we learn a life-giving thing at, at a minimum. And then in Ezekiel chapter 37, what do we learn? A similar thing, don't we? That this God-breathing thing is a restorative, more spiritual than the first one. The first one was physical life, right? This one was more of a spiritual representation, a metaphor, if you will. Said so these represent the nation of Israel. And so when John picks up this language, and Jesus chooses, in something that is very foreign to us as Americans, to say he breathed on them. And said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. It is hard for me not to at least take these two passages and help me understand that this is some form of ultimate fulfillment of what God had said that this will bring you to life. And Ezekiel 37, and my spirit will come and live in them. Did you see that similarity? It's very, very profound. We're not quite at Pentecost yet. If you're familiar with New Testament theology, then you might be saying, wait a minute, I thought the Holy Spirit came in Acts chapter 2, not here in John chapter 20. Well, slightly different. What I want to speak to you about this morning, and, I, and I, I don't think there's any type of real conflict there, but neither do I have time to deal with all of it, Doug, so uh, at 4 minutes and 45 seconds. But what I want to remind you of is this. They need the Holy Spirit for power. Power from on high to go and do this mission. But there has been a progression here about the Holy Spirit. Uh, a quick biblical theology of God's presence. In Eden and a man named Enoch, early in the Bible, it is said that God walked with them. God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. And it is said that Enoch walked with God and was no more. 
Noah and the Tower of Babel, those stories that God is pictured as coming down and seeing. Like he came down to see what they were doing at the tower. God looked down and saw that all the ways of man were always evil continually. It's a horrible verse. It's like a triple superlative evil. It's just so bad. Uh, Abraham and Moses, God engages and makes a covenant. He says, I will bless you. And we see these theophanies of the burning bush. And, and God represents himself to people in moments and in images. We get to David and Solomon, and there's the talk of building a temple. And Solomon eventually builds a temple. And the glory of God comes and dwells in the Holy of Holies. In Ezekiel chapter 10, actually, I won't turn you there. Sad, sad chapter. God's glory leaves the temple. What kind of day is that? For Heather Hills Baptist Church and God's glory leaves. This is a bad day. 400 years of silence from Malachi to the birth of John the Baptist. And no real representation, no visits from God, no prophets. Where is God? And then as Jesus dies, what happens in the temple? This multi-inch thick curtain which represented the distance between us and God was torn in two. I've always wrestled with this. I was like, well, if in the Old Testament they got saved by looking forward to Jesus, and now we get saved by looking at Jesus, and if everyone has always been saved by grace through faith in Jesus, then why couldn't, why does the Holy Spirit not live in the Old Testament people? And I only really contemplated it from our perspective. They're the same people. They're just as sinful as I was. I'm no more sinful than them or whatever. Why is it different? Friends, the stain of sin in us was so great that it took the atonement for that to be possible, even though we are still sinners. The atonement was so profound. The not guilty decree of Jesus was so absolute. The purification of sins that Jesus made and sat down at the right hand of the Father was so cleansing that now... The Spirit of God can live in us. I never thought of it from God's perspective. It was so helpful for me to think about. Jesus brings us an indwelling person. And lastly, an enduring promise, which has more to do with the mission of our church here and for the assurance of your uh, redemption. And Jesus says, if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. And if you withhold them, it is withheld. I have a minute and a half left and... Only three pages, so we'll, we'll excerpt this just a little bit. This is not too dissimilar from Matthew chapter 16 when Peter confessed to Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Peter said, hey, whatever you bind on earth will have already been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have already been loosed in heaven. This is not uncommon language in the New Testament that Jesus would be commissioning his disciples. But it is not some rabbit's foot, willy-nilly um, commissioning of them to do something outside of what the scripture would say or what God had ordained and commissioned to the disciples. Friends, to the contrary, this is the ministry that God has called them to. The ministry of reconciliation is not that we are the arbiters of forgiveness But because of the work of Jesus on our behalf and the written commands of God showing us what is sin and what is not, that we can declare to people that if they turn to Christ, their sins are forgiven. 
And the converse is true and saddens me and is hard to talk about. But we know that if there are those who will not turn to Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, that their sins are held against them. We don't have some odd ministry. The mission of the church is clearly defined. These things work in tandem. This is the ministry and mission of the church. It's why we're not too fired up about politics or health care or social gospel here at Heather Hills. There is nothing more important than the ministry of the gospel. Chapter 20, Mary, Jesus is alive. What does she do? I need to go tell somebody. So she goes and tells Peter and John. Later, she's with an angel. The angel tells Mary, he's alive. You need to go tell some people. So she runs back to the disciples. And what does Jesus say on this Easter morning, Easter evening, when he encounters the disciples? He says, you need to go tell somebody. All throughout Easter Sunday, he's alive. You should go tell somebody. He's not dead. Go tell somebody. How can you not tell somebody that a dead man's alive? He's the king. And he can forgive your sins. You need to tell someone. And that's the message of the first Easter, and it's the message of Heather Hills Baptist Church even today. You invite our praise team back to the platform and um, prepare for our last song. And while they're coming, I, uh, I, don't often, I don't always do this, I forget, but um, if you're here this morning and God is speaking to you and you have any kind of spiritual need or you'd like to talk about salvation, I want to pray with one of, uh, one of the church leaders or pastors right over here. If you'll meet one of our counselors right after the service, we'd be glad to meet with you privately. And not embarrass you in any way, but just um, have the opportunity to, uh, to visit with you and hopefully bless you with the Word of God. This whole breathing thing is kind of interesting, isn't it, as we relate to the Word of God and the ministry of the Word of God, because one of the great Awana verses is that all Scripture is God-breathed, and this becomes so important. Well, let me tell you these three wonderful heartwarming effects. When someone brings a housewarming gift... It, it's, it warms the heart. It's like, yeah, you know, it's, it's just something encouraging. Uh, Jesus changes fear into gladness. You see that? I already commented on it. Uh, what a wonderful thing that Jesus changes fear into gladness. Your life is full of sin. Your life's full of failure, conflict, frustration, disappointment, and struggle. But Jesus changes fear into gladness. Are you happy for that? That warms my heart. Jesus changes conflict into peace. You're, they're, they're hiding in the room, locked doors. Your life apart from Christ is a life of separation due to the effects of sin. You're at war with God. As a result, you're at war with others. And truthfully, you're not even at peace with yourself. Jesus changes conflict into peace. That, that's a great gift. And lastly, Jesus changes closed lives into lives of blessing. Closed lives into lives of blessing. They're hiding, worried about themselves, what's going to happen to us. Oh my, your life is full of empty pursuits, fleeting pleasures, fleeting pleasures, selfish initiatives. You watch too much TV, you play too many video games, and you worry too much about what you want. Your life is empty and becoming more and more empty every year. Jesus changes closed up, meaningless lives into lives of blessing and satisfaction that are poured out for him. 
We think if we pursue this for ourselves, we will be happy, but the truth is the opposite. As we give our lives away, we are filled more and more by Christ. Jesus is the promised one. Because of his death and resurrection, those who believe this about Jesus have life in his name. Jesus has called his people to believe in him as the one God sent and to offer eternal life to others as well. Let's honor the mission of Jesus. Father, thank you for your word. May it go deep in our hearts and produce a fruitful harvest of righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen.